So today's message is entitled, For to us a child is born, and our text is in Isaiah chapter 9, so starting with verse 1. So I'd like you to turn there. So if you go to the middle of your Bible, middle of your Bible, and then make a right-hand turn. And Isaiah is a big book, so it's, it's hard to miss. And go to Isaiah chapter 9, and let's read together this text, Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 1 to 7. It's a text that you're familiar with. Why? Well, two reasons. Flash mobs that we all look at on YouTube, right? Because choirs sing Handel's Messiah. And the Hallelujah Chorus. For unto us a child is born. But actually before that, thankfully Handel, God inspired Handel to write this beautiful Messiah, which is pure scripture. I was listening to it yesterday as I was preparing uh, the sermon and, and it's, it's all scripture, set to music, and it's, it's really great. And this is probably the, most, probably the most known passage in Handel's Messiah. So, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad and when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Lord, I pray that you will now open up your word to us as a church, that you would give us hearts to understand, and that you would give us hope this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In Dante's Inferno, the words on the gates of hell read as follows. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Now, this has become a proverb in our modern day to express the thought that if you come in, be prepared for the worst. It can be used for a chaotic but not so serious situation like, my teenager's bedroom is such a mess that abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Or, or, It can be used to describe a very serious situation when circumstances bring such darkness, 
chaos and discouragement that one loses hope and places Dante's sign over one's heart. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. That would be the situation for the people in our text today. And maybe for some of you this morning. They had lost all hope, these people in northern Israel, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the nations. So this area here, Galilee, this is northern Israel. This is the area he was speaking of. You'll notice Nazareth is right there, where Jesus was from. This is the area he's speaking of. The reason they had lost hope is because the Assyrians, who were north, had invaded from the north and wiped them out. Imagine an invading army destroying your home and neighborhood right now, killing some of your family, carrying some of your family off into exile into another foreign country. And now they've set up shop in your neighborhood. They live in your neighborhood. They're speaking a foreign language that you do not understand. And they're oppressing you. They're enslaving you. And you know that this is because you disobeyed God. And God's righteous judgment was upon you. In fact, Isaiah 8.22, which is the verse preceding Isaiah 9.1, describes this area as being in distress and darkness. The gloom of anguish and thrust into Thick darkness, not just darkness, but thick darkness. Folks, they were hopeless. And into their hopelessness, God sent Isaiah to declare to them this truth. For to us a child is born, and with him hope into the hearts of the hopeless. And this is the main point of the text. For to us a child is born, and with him, with him, hope, hope. In our hearts. See, like the residents of Zebulun and Naphtali, we all carry a little hopelessness hopelessness around in our pockets. For most of us, it is just small areas in our lives. Areas where we have lost hope that things will ever change. Areas where we experience a bit of darkness, a bit of gloominess, a bit of despair, maybe some fear, maybe some loneliness. But pockets of it. Pockets of hopelessness. However, for some of you, those pockets of hopelessness have become huge backpacks of hopelessness, filled with fear, filled with anguish, and gloomy all the time. You are silently drifting into despair. And some days, the fight for you is just to get out of bed. You've lost hope for things to change. You've lost hope that there will be any good that will come your way anymore. Friends, God brings us hope this morning through the truths of this passage. It is no ordinary hope. No, it's a biblical hope. What's the difference? Well, here's the difference. Biblical hope is more than simply desiring something good to happen in the future. Hoping that it will happen? No. Biblical hope expects it to happen with confidence that it will happen. Listen to John Piper's definition of biblical hope here on the screen. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. 
That is the hope communicated to us in this passage. It is the confident expectation for something good to happen. And that something good comes to us through Jesus Christ. The child born to us 2,000 years ago. Born to live the perfect life that we could never live. Born to die the sacrificial death to pay the penalty for our disobedience to God. And resurrected from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins. And ascended into heaven to rule and reign as our king. And who has sent us the Holy Spirit to give us hope today. If you walked in here this morning with hopelessness. Maybe just a pocket full of it. Maybe a backpack full of it. I pray that you walk out with the powerful biblical hope that only Jesus Christ brings to us. A hope that is certain. You want to know how certain that hope is? Well, the Hebrew, the Hebrew used in this text is mostly in the past tense. The reason that this is unusual is that this text speaks of the future birth of Christ that would not occur for many hundred years after it was written. But the Hebrew use is in the past tense. Why? Because God, God intentionally inspired Isaiah to use the past tense in prophesying a future promise of the birth of Messiah, of Christ. Why? Because this promise was a fact, not a prediction. That's biblical hope. A child would be born to us, and with him, hope in our hearts. Hope in the hearts of the hopeless. See, my prayer this morning is that hope would be born, or perhaps for some of you, reborn in your hearts today, as you hear the promise, the promise of hope. And for some of you, maybe that's for the very first time, for others of you, it's to remind you of this promise. So point one, the promise of hope for the hopeless. Zebulun and Naphtali lay in ruins. The people's homes were literally destroyed. Their dreams were shattered. The words gloom, if you look at verse one, the words gloom and anguish there in verse one, are meant to connect us with the very same words, gloom and anguish, in verse 22 of chapter 8. So how how were these people to interpret their darkness? The circumstances that they were living in, the shattering of their dreams, the destruction of their homes. How were they to interpret their dark circumstances? Now obviously there's application for us. How are we to interpret our dark circumstances? How are we to to interpret dreams? Maybe some of them just a small amount of our life. Maybe for some of us, the entire life's dream is shattered. Whatever, whatever little hopelessness or big hopelessness in your life, whatever darkness, whatever dismay, whatever anguish, how are you to interpret that? The answer is through the lens of what God has done for us in Christ. See, hope is a present reality that looks by faith at what God has done for us in Christ. No doubt, we can be tempted to look at the darkness, at the broken dreams, and conclude God has somehow forgotten us, and that would be a lie. 
one that Satan, the world, and our flesh would love for us to believe. But God wants us to believe the truth. And the truth is far different. He wants us to look at the darkness and by faith see the light. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 9. It's amazing. It says that God would again allow this land, this land that was in darkness, would allow it to see light. There would be no more gloom for this land. But not only would he allow it to seem light, but he would make it glorious. Listen, this land, verse 1, that was brought into contempt. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So God says, I am going to make glorious what had been brought into contempt. And you know what? God will make glorious our lives that as well have experienced, or perhaps some of you are experiencing, contempt. Contempt. Shattered dreams. Foreign enemies occupying your land. Depression, discouragement, dismay, contempt. God says, I am going to make glorious that land that formerly had experienced contempt. And I'm going to make glorious you, this church, that formerly had experienced contempt. How? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews 2.10. Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, speaking of God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to what? Glory. Should make the founder of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. See, Jesus takes what was formerly in contempt... And makes it glorious by becoming contempt for us on the cross. This is the gospel. So that we might then experience his glory that we don't deserve, but he allows us to experience when we put our faith in him. Now verse 2 of Isaiah 9 says clearly that how he did this, he made these people who walked in darkness glorious. How? By shining his light on them so that they might see a great light. Friends, the great light here is Jesus Christ. We read in Matthew 4, 13 to 16, that this is exactly what happened many hundreds of years later at Jesus' first coming. Matthew 4, 13 to 16. And leaving Nazareth, speaking of Jesus, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of what? Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Matthew says here, God keeps his promises. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the land of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Look carefully. They did nothing to create this light. God shined his light on them. We did nothing to create this light. God shined his light on us in Christ. As it says in the Matthew quote of Isaiah, on them a light 
has dawned. Imagine, imagine the sun rising on you after a deep, dark night of the soul. You did nothing to make it rise, but rise it did on you. Has the light of Christ dawned on you? Then look to the light. See the great light. God made them glorious by shining a light on them. And God made them glorious by multiplying the nation and by giving them an increase of their joy. Jim spoke of joy this morning. That fourth candle speaks of joy this morning. God made them glorious by increasing their joy. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The Hebrew that is translated increased its joy could also read, read this way. For them, of all people, you have increased their joy. For them, of all people, you have increased their joy. What does that mean? It means they didn't deserve it. It means they were the least of all. Northern Israel was considered half-breeds. I mean, can anything good come from Nazareth, it was said of Jesus? Can anything good come from Galilee? Those were the wrong side of the tracks. Not on those people. They don't make enough. They don't believe the right thing. Look at them. They are different. They are cursed. There are people in darkness. Write them off. And God says, no, they're my people. I will make them glorious. And I will increase their joy. Oh, friends, he, he will make us glorious. Because we are a people who do not deserve it. Of all people, those folks at Palm Vista, that's right. We readily acknowledge we are the least. We don't deserve it. But God has made, he's increased our joy. He took the wrath in Christ. He took the wrath that we deserve. He increased our joy in Christ, no matter what our circumstances that surround us. So what do we do? What did they do? They rejoiced in the Lord. Look at that in verse 3. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. No matter what the circumstance. Why? Because it's a joy, as Jim said, that's not dependent on my circumstances. It's a joy I receive from God, do you rejoice before the God who has increased your joy today? We did nothing to create this joy. God is the one who multiplied it to us. He increased our joy, and for that reason, we rejoice in him. That's why we sing as we do. That's why we give as we do. See, this is the promise, the promise of hope for the hopeless, is that God will shine a light into their darkness and that God will increase joy to those who were in gloom. Here's the question. All right, Al. What is the basis of this promise? That's point two. The basis of hope for the hopeful. I want you to note something. Look in your Bibles. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. I want you to circle the very first word of each one of those verses. It's the word for. That is a conjunction. It's one of those because. I'm going to do this because of this. And verses 4, 5, actually 6 and 7 are the because. They're the reason. They're the basis for God's promise of hope. So let's take a look at this promise. The basis for the promise, dear friends, is what Jesus Christ has done 
for us. It's what Jesus Christ has done for us. You will notice I have three bullet points here, and we're going to look at these in detail. But in nine, in chapter 9, verse 4, he has liberated us from the oppressor. So what has he done for us? What are the things found in Christ alone? Liberation from the oppressor. 9.5. What has, is found in Jesus Christ? Celebration with the victor. And what is found in Jesus Christ? Well, incarnation of the king. He's the king. There's your basis of the joy. That's why nothing can shake it. So let's take a look at the first bullet point. The first basis for our joy. The first basis to believe this promise of hope from God that light will shine in our darkness, that joy will replace our gloom. Liberation from the oppressor. God's divine action always liberates God's people from the oppressor. Now, if you look at verse 4, you will see two historical references in this verse. See if you can find them. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Here's the first historical reference. Yoke, burden, shoulder, oppressor. That is referring to Egypt. When Israel were slaves, they were under the burden. They had the yoke. There was the rod of the oppressor. They were being beaten. So the reference is, the basis, the liberation, just as Moses liberated Israel from Egypt and from from the oppression of Pharaoh, so Jesus, the greater Moses, liberates us from Satan and his oppression now. That's the basis of God's hope. And the second historical reference is to the defeat of Midian. Do you see that at the end of verse 4? You have broken as on the day of Midian. How did God do it? This is the exciting part. (laughs) How did God do it? Well, here's how he did it. Totally by his power. That's what Midian represents. Because who was the judge that liberated Israel from Midian? It was Gideon. Gideon. In fact, if you go back to Judges and you read it, Gideon was the deliverer of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Now here's the deal with Gideon. Gideon started out with an incredible army. He had 32,000 men in his army. And God said that's too many. So God reduced his army to 300 men. Why? Because God wants us to read it this morning and understand that deliverance is by God and God alone, not by our force. Not by how many people we have. How big our God is. And how else did God deliver Gideon? Well, he took those 300 men and he said, I want you at night to surround the camp of your enemy. They were resting at night. The next day they were going to get up and wipe out Israel. A camp, an army far superior to these 300 men. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go, not with, a, not with rifles or guns or weapons. I want you to go with a trumpet in one hand and a jar in the other hand. And guess what was inside the jar? A torch. A torch lit with light from God. And at a certain moment, I want you to blow that trumpet in your hand and I want you to smash the jar and grab the torch and hold up the light and I want you to shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. You know what God did? He caused those people that were half asleep, that army that was 
many times bigger than Israel, to get up, see the lights, hear the trumpets, assume that an army far greater than, than theirs was coming, and they, they started killing each other. I mean, it was like the Keystone Cops. It was like the Three Stooges. They, they just took off. Let me ask you a question. Did Gideon do that? No, no, no. The, the hope we have is based on what God did, not what we can do. Now, we are to obey. It took faith to stand around that huge army. I'd have plenty of faith sneaking around in the dark, listening to them snore, realizing there are some big uglies in that camp that they, just want to kill me. Where it would get really interesting is when, when the leader said, all right, guys, you're ready to blow the trumpet. And right as you're about to blow it, you go, you know, when I blow this trumpet and smash this jar, two things, it's going to wake them up. They're not going to be happy. And they're going to know where I'm at. If God doesn't deliver me, I'm dead. And they blew the trumpet. They raised the torch. This, this is faith. This is the basis of our hope. Second basis of our hope is celebration with the victor. We know that the victor is Jesus Christ. God always liberates his people through his person, his man. All the liberators of, of, of Israel have always been pointing to the liberator who is Jesus Christ. But here's the deal. In this text, the liberated people of God get to enter in freely and enjoy the fruits or the spoils of the Lord's victory. See, the Lord breaks the alien power that has gripped his people. That's what it means. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So when you wipe out your enemy, you you take all his stuff and you burn it in the fire. You get the spoils of those enemies. Well, when was the enemy routed? I mean, really routed. On the cross. On the cross. Jesus routed the enemy on the cross. Look at Colossians 2, 13 to 15. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he did. Where did he do this? Where did he win the the battle? This he did. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Where? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through him. Jesus won the battle at the cross and we get the spoils of the victory. We did not fight in the battle. We entered the battlefield only after the fighting was done. And yet we're able to pick up all the fruits of God's victory and just just walk off the battlefield as if we had won the battle. It would be as if the Dolphins today were to score a touchdown up in Buffalo and none of us played in that game, but somehow we were transported there and right about when one of those guys about to spike the football, I say, hey, Pino, you had nothing to do with this. Come on, you get to spike it. And on national TV, I'm like, bam. Did Did I earn that? No, I didn't. The act, listen, the act of conquest is the preaching of the gospel. It's the preaching of the gospel of the conqueror. The crucified Christ who was raised from the dead and who ascended into heaven. Jesus, the Christ child, born to us. This is the work of evangelism. Friends, this is the basis of our victory. It's our message. It's a foolish message. 
As foolish as Gideon going from 32,000 to 300, standing around with a jar and a torch and a trumpet. But it's God's message. It's the message of Jesus Christ, who won the victory on the cross and invites us out onto the battlefield after the battle has been won to collect the spoils of the victory. May this bring you hope today, friend. No matter what you are suffering, and I know there are some serious things going on. I'm not diminishing your suffering I'm not diminishing the fight against darkness. I'm just trying to hold up the greater light. This celebration with the victor, who is the incarnate God. And this is the final basis for our hope. It's the incarnation of the king, that third bullet. Now, friends, this is the ultimate basis for the hope. The hope of light and joy to people in darkness and gloom. God promises us the birth of a child. I love the way it's stated here. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This quote by uh, Alec Motyer in his commentary on Isaiah says the following. He is born as from human parentage and given as from God. The child is both God and man. He's the God-man, Christ Jesus the Lord, the incarnate word of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, and yet born of the virgin as man. His coming, friends, his coming secures all that God has promised. His coming secures all that God has promised. When it says the government shall be upon his shoulder at the second part of verse 6, that means that the rule, God's rule of God's kingdom, he will bear that rule. He's the only one that can bear that rule because he's the king. And so what happens here is that Isaiah is going to give us the name of this king. What will this king be called? So Isaiah gives us a fourfold name of the king, and in doing so, he explains his rule. So who is this king? The fourfold name of the king. Number one, he's the wonderful counselor. Those go together. He's the wonderful counselor. See, Jesus is wise. He is the one who has the wisdom suitable to sustain his everlasting kingdom. Any organization, any kingdom, okay, its future is determined by the decisions of the leader, of the king. Those decisions are either going to make or break the kingdom. And since this is an everlasting kingdom, it it demands everlasting wisdom and a wisdom that is God's wisdom. And that's exactly who Jesus is. He is the wonderful counselor. He has wisdom. He knows how to run the kingdom. See, our hope is based on Jesus' wisdom as our wonderful counselor. Jesus guarantees the preservation of the kingdom and our preservation. So friends, hope in Jesus. Next, mighty God. Jesus is God in the flesh, no doubt about it. God, man, the incarnation. Yes, it's a mystery, but it's true. God, incarnate. He is the God of all creation who fights against his enemies. He's the mighty God. There's a a sense here of a battle, of of the God of the the armies, uh, of a God of war. He's the mighty God. He fights against all his enemies, and he wins. And he delivers us. As we just talked about in verse 5, he invites us onto the battlefield after he wins to enjoy the spoils, to pick up whatever we want, metaphorically speaking, (laughs) his will, 
but to receive blessings that we could never earn on our own because he won the battle. Oh, friends, our hope is based on Jesus' victory as our mighty king. Jesus guarantees our victory. Hope in Jesus. Next, everlasting father. What you see here is this aspect of the king that expresses care and or discipline for his people like a father cares for and disciplines his own children for their good and in God's case, for his glory. We are his people. So this is the God. This is the guarantee of our hope. He's going to treat us as a father does his children. And we are to respond in loving reverence. He is the everlasting father. He is the one who rules and his rule will never end. And we are his people, secure in his care. Our hope is based on Jesus' care for us as an everlasting father would care for his children. Jesus guarantees our care, friends. He hasn't forgotten you. Hope in Jesus. And finally, Prince of Peace. Oh, friends, Jesus alone brings peace. He alone fulfilled the Father's will perfectly. Thus, receiving the Father's favor. On the cross, Jesus not only took our sin and our punishment, but he gave us his righteousness and the favor that he has with the Father. The great exchange. Friends, true peace can only be found in this exchange. In Jesus Christ. Only in Christ can you experience God's favor. There's no work you can do. There's no money you can give. There's there's no perfection you can try to attain to absolve you from the guilt of your sin. No, friend, it's Jesus Christ alone who takes the payment penalty for your sin and gives you the favor of his righteousness. Only in Jesus can you live with integrity, What that means with a wholeness, this shalom, this word peace. Shalom means being whole or integrous. What does that mean? That means you're in line with God and in line with one another. That means you love God and you love one another. We're not going to experience that perfectly here, but we can taste it. We can begin to see it. If some of you are hopeless right now because you're in a serious conflict with your spouse, with your children, with your neighbor, you're estranged from people. There's a sense of hopelessness and darkness that is just creeping in on you. Things won't change. Listen, friend, I'm not trying to say they're going to change perfectly here, but you have hope. Because Jesus bore the reproach and the contempt of that conflict. And he gives you hope. So even in the midst of the darkness and you're looking at the shattered home and this guy is living there with his family who does not speak your language in your neighborhood, metaphorically speaking, and that relationship looks like it will never be rebuilt, there's hope. Listen, let the light of Jesus interpret that gloom, that conflict. I'm telling you, there's hope in Jesus. Why? Because your greatest conflict is not with that person you're thinking of right now, however much it hurts. Your greatest conflict is with God. And Jesus has resolved that conflict. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Our hope is based on the peace Jesus alone can bring with God and with our fellow man. Jesus guarantees our peace. Hope in Jesus. Here's the appeal. How do we respond to God's hope revealed in Christ? And does our response match his action? 
When God shines his light on us, do we walk in it? When God increases our joy, do we rejoice in him? When God sends us the king, do we receive his kingdom of peace under his rule? See, the spiritual gloom of Isaiah 8.22 is dispelled forever by the light of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Hope has come in the birth of Christ Jesus. Receive God's hope today, friend, in Christ Jesus. You may have entered this auditorium hopeless. May you exit hopeful, filled with God's hope through Jesus' redemptive work for you, applied by the Holy Spirit to your life, to our lives right now. May we be like the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, formerly thrust in deep darkness and the anguish of gloom, but now... Now, walking in the light and rejoicing before the God who has liberated us from sin and death and given us the spoils of the victor in Jesus Christ, who is the child born a king, your wonderful counselor, your mighty God, your everlasting father, and your prince of peace. This is the hope that Christ gives us. Christ, the child born a king, brings us this hope. And what does it look like for us to live in this hope? Well, here's what it looks like. It looks like a confident expectation that you will overcome the sin in your life that has held you under its power, whatever it is you are thinking about right now. It's the confident expectation that Jesus will give us as a church the spoils of his victory. What is that? The people he has won with his life, death, and resurrection who are yet to be saved right outside of our doors and yet to be added to the church. And it looks like sharing the gospel with them in hope, holding up the torch like Gideon and shouting and blowing the trumpet, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. Our greater Gideon is Jesus. And we shout his name and we speak his word, the sword of the Spirit. And we watch God rout our enemies and set free his people. Looks like inviting folks to our Christmas Eve service this Tuesday night. At the end of the service, a few ushers are going to be posted at the doorways. They're going to have some invitation cards. Why don't you take a few? Hey, even if you can't come, invite people. (laughs) They're going to hear the gospel. And finally, it looks like proclaiming the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the King. It looks like speaking to family and friends this Christmas season about the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Do you know him this morning? Let's pray that God would reveal him to all of us. That unto us this morning a child would be born, and with him hope in our hearts. Let's pray, and worship team, would you join me up here? Father, I pray that you would reveal your son. Your word is clear. No one can come to the son unless you draw him. John 6, 44. Lord, would you draw souls right now that have been alienated, disinterested, even rebellious to the son. Lord, draw them to the son. Lord, on those who had dwelt in deep darkness, would you shine the light? Would the light of Jesus Christ dawn upon those who were in darkness? On us who carry little pockets of darkness around with us, little pockets of discouragement and dismay and gloom. Oh, Lord, come shine upon us. Give us fresh hope of light and joy. Lord, increase our joy even now as we get prepared to sing. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the victory of Christ. You would show us the spoils of his victory. Lord, I pray that you would show us the King. Lord, you would give us faith that 
on our lips would be the name of Jesus. That we wouldn't be afraid of the larger army that we're surrounding. But like Gideon's army, this little band of folks in this room would stand around this huge camp in darkness, asleep, metaphorically speaking, dead to God. And we would blow the trumpet of the gospel and we would shatter the jars and stop hiding our faith in Christ out of fear. And we would lift up the torch and we would shout a sword, the sword of the Lord, sword for Gideon. And God, you would save your people and you would rout the enemy. Lord, build your church. May the gates of hell not prevail against it. For you are the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Amen. Would you please stand and let's sing together.